Hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's Cab Chat Podcast. I'm Dr. Mindy Waite, and we have with us Dr. Jessica Lockhart. Hello, everybody. And this month, we were connecting because we we went to the Interdisciplinary Forum for Applied Animal Behavior, which is one of my favorite conferences. Um, and we just had it, what, two, three weeks ago? So it's 2021 version. Yep. And before we go into some of the, the, the talks that we heard and what Jessica and I thought, maybe whether we agree or disagree on, on some of the outcomes, um, I just want to say the reason I like this conference in case anybody listening is ever interested in attending is because it's typically a very, um, it's not informal, but it's, what's the word when it's very cozy. Is that, I don't, I wouldn't say cozy, (laughs) but it's it's, intimate, intimate. That's the word. Yeah. It's, it's unique in that you have to present to attend. And so no one is just sitting in the back of the room, shaking their head and nodding off or whatever. You know, you're there as a participant, no matter if you're talking or actively listening. Yeah. It's great. It's probably one of the few conferences where I, I learned something with every presentation, with every day, and even in the social hours. And, you know, it, it really is an information hack conference. That's yeah. Unique. Yeah. And you meet so many cool people who you didn't even know, like sometimes you didn't even know they existed. And, mm-hmm. and, and once you meet them and you, you hear them talk and you learn about their sort of like their professional space, you're kind of like, I don't know how I didn't know this person was alive yeah. and doing <laughs> stuff. So, but so what we're going to do today is, um, I have maybe let's say five or six of the talks that Jessica and I thought were like some of the most interesting from the conference. And um, we just want to chat through what we, what we learned. Um, the first notes I have, Jessica, are from Jen Shryock and Jill Sackman, who are, uh, I guess, the CEO and an employee of Family Paws Parent Education. Many of you will, will remember Jen from um, being on the show probably two years ago now. And they specifically focus on canine behavior relative to to people with families. So people with, with kids, essentially. So adding kids or your children are hitting new milestones, going from infancy to toddlerhood, to mm-hmm. childhood, to young adulthood, whatever it might be. Um, yeah, they, they kind of offer solutions and help through each stage mm-hmm. of growing. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm glad you said that because, you know, when you think through, you've got a client coming to you and they have a, a dog who has behavior problems and like, like there are or could be problems with the kid. I often sort of think, and I don't have kids, so maybe this is why I don't think this way, yeah. but I think, okay, how am I going to solve that problem for them now? But what was really interesting about this talk by um, by this team is they're thinking like they understand a baby is not a toddler, is not a, what comes after a toddler? Child? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> a pupa and a butterfly <laughs> and... <laughs> Um, but they're really thinking through like these different stages of development result in very different behaviors from the child and how can, how can they set their clients up throughout each of those phases to an, ensure or, or maximize the safety of the dog and the baby. Um, yeah. And it's not mm-hmm. just dogs that started with behavior problems. This is, That's true. You might have what seems like the most solid animal on the planet and you bring a baby home and you find out that, you know, it doesn't really respond well to crying or mom carrying around a shaky, jiggly, eight pound, something or other wrapped in a blanket. You know, I mean, it's uh, it's interesting. So it's a wonderful program. It needs much more publicity. It's, yeah. It is getting out there, um, but just the thought and the organization and the information that she has pulled together, it's number one, it's reliable, effective. It's easy to implement. It's thoughtful. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I recommend it all the time. 
time. I have a lot of clients that call in and go, yeah, you know, we can get started, but there's also this other program. She has a lot of information on her website and um, and her presentation was super interesting because she oh. had video showing where they started and where they got to and including these milestones. So it went from the mom was pregnant and then the infant at home to mm-hmm. toddler to mm-hmm. uh, kind of this independent walker and how they were able to help keep the dog and baby and family yeah. safe and together. Yeah. And I agree. Like the videos, I just love these videos because some of these dogs you think, oh gosh, this is not going to go wildly well. Um, but you're right. They, they get the dog used to the baby and the environment and all of the baby's behaviors. And then you're right, they show the next video at like the next stage. And what's interesting is the dog does um, start re-engaging in some of those problem behaviors when the when the when the kid hits the next phase. But mm-hmm. that's okay. Everyone's prepared, everyone's safe, and they just they continue working on that behavior. Um, but they're expecting it, which I think is really important. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. And you know, having having just had another baby, which shockingly is <laughs> it's been a while now. <laughs> um, but when I went through the classes, again, there was one slide on dog and child safety. And in the slide, it was like, you know, let your dog sniff your baby and make sure he knows who the baby is. I'm like, that's number one. No, don't, don't do that. <laughs> don't, don't put your baby by a dog's face. That's a horrible step. Um, and, and that was it. That was all the slides on child safety regarding animals in the class that was put on through the hospital. And, you know, they had eight slides on anchoring your television set and really nothing about infant and and dog safety or infant and and pet safety for that matter. I mean, um, I'm not sure Family Paws covers cat safety and getting cats comfortable, but um, Hmm. there there are things that you want to consider for your companion animal. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing, the other thing that I want to highlight that was both sort of terrifying, but also sort of interesting is uh, you've got this, you've got this concern when um, you have this dog and this kid, but you're going to, this kid's gonna be a kid for a long time, right? I mean, up until like, I guess by the law, 18 years old. And so I said, um, when you're working with these clients, and they come to you and like this baby's just born, and this, this dog has a problem with kids, uh, at, uh, what do you tell them about when they can sort of relax the management and the training? And they were like, never. Yeah, no, because kids change all the time and your dog yeah. is changing, right? So your dog might be two or three when the baby's born. Well, by yeah. the time your baby is three or four, your dog is now a senior. And then, you know, senior dogs don't move as fast. They can be a little, yeah, have some pain yeah. or grumbles. And, and then when kids are five and six, you know, they're highly mobile and hey, yeah. this is, let's take the dog for a walk and let's go, go go but um yeah so huge kudos to those families because that's that's a lot of work (laughs) i'll just say that's a lot of work Um, it is and i understand when people are like oh i'm pregnant let's go get a dog (laughs) i I try to point out like okay by the time your kid is like five or six they can really go out and have fun with the dog dog's gonna be like sick right there's only about you know four more good years if you're feeding them right and taking care of them and vet care and everything else you know like just wait wait till your kid it's like five or six and then get a puppy. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody. Well, yeah. And that's, and that's, that's interesting. You say that a little bit because I have, um, I have a list of what they said that the challenges that they face in their particular sector are some of these, I think are really interesting. So, um, the first one, you know, not surprising that, that couples will wait until the babies actually do before they seek help. And then it's, you're trying to cram in a lot of work into very little time. Yes. And you're probably stressed. I imagine you're very stressed at that point. You're kind of tired. (laughs) 
<laughs> so, so yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, um, last thing, the last thing, I mean, speaking from experience and, yeah. you know, I'm an N of one here, but when you're three, even six weeks away from your due date, you're done. Like, uh, you don't want to lift anything. You don't want to do anything extra. You're so exhausted. And the idea of having to sit down and desensitize an animal and, okay, let's figure out where they have to go and let's rearrange furniture and let's, you know, that's not the time. It's so hard. And I guess people just kind of think, oh yeah, we should be able to sit down and explain to Fluffy, like the baby's coming home. You sit over there. It'll be fine. You got it. Good. Let's go. You know? Like, well, yeah. All it has to do is kiss the baby's face. So. Right. Yeah. Let's yeah. Yeah. So apparently that's like challenge number one, but challenge number two, which I also think is very interesting is that um, families are in denial that their dog would would bite. And that's partially because uh, when, when Jen was talking, she said, many of these dogs are perfectly fine with their owners. Like they don't, they don't guard things. They don't bite their owners. They don't do, you know, do anything problematic. And it's just, it's just other people or like kids specifically. So the family is very much in denial that their dog could ever bite their kid. Right. Yeah. My dog just doesn't like kids, but you're about to have a kid. Oh, but yeah. it's our kid. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the third myth here is that the, the family dog knows that the baby is family. And so it won't, it'll treat the baby like it does the parents but also you know that's may not be true and if families are coming in with that idea then um then the professional sort of has to disabuse them of that notion and uh oh you know fourth challenge on here this is this is something everyone has experienced who has a dog with problem behavior is that you get too comfortable like you've worked on it with you know the the baby and the problem behavior looks pretty good and you're like well just this one time i'll you know let the dog come close or you know whatever what have you yeah it's like oh this should be fine be and- fine and that's yeah um another challenge is that many of the families compensate for the dog's behavior until they are expecting and then they can't compensate anymore because they're, they're too tired or or mm-hmm. yeah too it's gonna be too problematic so that, that's when they wait to seek help um or many families wait until the baby's actually crawling before they get help so the baby's now no longer in that very i guess it's not quiet but static non-normal. yeah and, mm-hmm. and a lot of times with that is that there have been a lot of signs that the dog's not handling things well but they're misinterpreted kind of thanks to social media now where you see these videos I was like, look how cute. And it's just yeah. a show, honestly, where, you know, the dog is so stressed, it's licking its lips, licking the baby, it's turning its face away. And then all of a sudden turning back to the last minute and licking that baby. I mean, that is a dog who's nervous, who is not doing good at all, you know, trying to get away from the baby. Um, and so you see a lot of that. And then all of a sudden now moving, well, they don't move in smooth, controlled patterns. I mean, it's jerky, it's herky, they trip, they fall down, they, you know, they flail around and they grasp at things with their hands. They have huge eyes. Oh yeah. They're coming at you. <laughs> they're coming <laughs> with, those, at you. with those great big bowling ball heads. <laughs> their, their poor little baby necks can't hold up. Um, yeah. And, and then all of a sudden the dog's like, I can't take it anymore. It was scaring me when it was just laying there, but now yeah. look at it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. And then that, that goes really nicely into the next challenge, which is that um, there are parental expectations that their baby or their toddler can be taught to read the dog and follow instructions. And, 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 and this team made it clear that they felt that m- maybe by the age of five, some kids could do that. But like, you know, three and four year olds are not reading the dog's body language, no matter how many times you have told them.
hold them, you know, don't bother the dog while he's growling or whatever. Yeah, I think it's unreasonable. I mean, three and four year olds can't even read adult emotional expressions, really, unless they're big expressions, you know, I mean, that part of the brain just hasn't developed yet. So to think that, oh, my three year old is just going to know what this dog is thinking. And you're over there counseling and you're like, well, you're the adult. You didn't even know all this body language that we're covering right now. Yeah. Yeah. It's unfair to to put that much responsibility on your three-year-old to keep itself safe. So um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I I think it really just hits into this denial and unrealistic expectation. You know, I mean, a dog at the end of the day is an animal and and it's not a human, right? It's not a four-legged human, no matter how much we want. Um, But there's, there's ways to do it. And really Jennifer's program is probably one of the, well, it's the only one I've seen that's out there and it is amazing. So yeah. Yeah, well worth taking a look at that. I will, as I mentioned, uh, as I mentioned, grandkids or nieces and dogs, you know, it's not even that expensive. I mean, if you do the consult consultations, I don't know how much that costs, but during the IFAB, I like, I, I really did go on their website and purchase one of their webinars, like while she was talking, my sister just had a baby a couple months ago. And I was like, Oh yeah. And that's, that's the other thing is that relatives with dogs are going to get visits from baby. Yeah. It's worth taking a look, even if the kids aren't your own. Um, you know, I have plenty of friends who've chosen that to not have children that's a perfectly healthy reasonable choice and but there are other friends have kids and they're going to come over so yeah. you know knowing what to do is important it's yes yes very- so um, I have I have many more notes, but I guess we'll stop it there and we'll yeah. move over to um, Lisa. Dr. Lisa Gunter also gave a presentation. We've had we've also had Lisa on the show before, but she's got some new data. And just remind everyone her her focus for her research is looking at field trips and sleepovers for dogs and shelters. And specifically, they're looking at the uh, stress outcomes for these dogs, like cortisol measures and also activity, you know, measures of, of, of rates of activity. And when she had been on the show before, I think she had shown then that if you have a shelter dog who is stressed because they're in a shelter, just they just are, and you take them on a two night overnight, then they sleep more. And I believe their stress goes down. And I can't remember. Well, the cortisol was. goes down. Yeah, the cortisol goes down. Um, but if you take them on a two hour, two hour vacation, then they get increased cortisol. So not what you would in theory want. Well, remember, cortisol is weird. No, that's true. That's a good point. So, you know, I have I'm not surprised that taking an animal out and making it exercise and run around, do things and experience right. things, the cortisol goes up. Yeah, that, that's kind of what it's supposed to do. But I'm, I am interested to know long term, what is that impact? Yeah, and, like and a, the I, behavioral impact. Yeah. And I think that's kind of where she's at with her data. I think she said that they have the data just haven't analyzed yet on, you know, do the dogs do better in their play groups for the next week? Or are they closer to the front of the kennel? Are they quieter? Are they, you know, pacing less? So do you see a, a behavior translation due to these little breaks from the kennel yeah. And those are all the notes I have. So you're right. I think there's, there are more data to be analyzed, but um, more to come, I suppose. I know. I know. I was just like, <laughs> come on, do the analysis now. I, want the <laughs> I, know. I know. Although I, I mean, you've worked in shelters before. So like, yeah. I guess, what is your knee jerk reaction to the, the two hour vacation versus the two night vacation? I mean, you're, I'm sure you're not shocked. Like, no, I think, I, I think that the two hour vacation is probably just as helpful as the two 
night vacation. Oh, you do? Okay. I do. I um, I think that there are dogs that get shut down in a kennel. And when you take them out, even for an hour, two hour break, and you bring them back, they're moving around, they're interacting, they might be barking at people where they had stopped. So that's why I'm saying I'm, I'm interested in that behavior mm. expression. Because cortisol, you know, everybody wants to know, oh, what's your cortisol? What's the cortisol? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you, you could just have the dog walk two extra steps and you've ruined your cortisol levels. Like, I mean, it's, it's such a tricky little beast in there. And it's just it, funny. Cause I would have thought the opposite. Like I would, I would have thought I here's okay. We can, we can make a bet here. I actually <laughs> bet that the two hour vacations for the majority of dogs on average, um, are, are, are make things worse. They're increased stress. Yeah. That they increase problem behaviors. That's my hypothesis. I have nothing, I have nothing to back it up, but you think the dog's like, I know freedom's out there. They no, no, it to me. <laughs> no, they no, me no, no, I love that. I love that interpretation, but no, um, I think it's just that, that it, it's just so much, it's just more change on top of change or it's it, like, it's an but unpredictable it's two change. hour. It could be. Yeah. I suppose it could be. I guess that's really what it, I guess in my mind, I'm like, okay, this is a standardized program. The dogs are going out on a walk and they're being engaged in some, you know, versus they just went for a car ride. Well, car ride's stressful or we took them to PetSmart. Well, yeah, you can do anything. That's the thing you could. Yeah. So I think we need to find out what they're actually taking them to go do and then, you know but i i do think um field trips are good for for the dog and i'm not surprised cortisol reads as bite mm. but there are there are other stress related hormones that they could be measuring that could help with really quantifying is the stress response or an excitement response or an activity response or a circadian rhythms bite or you know why is the cortisol going up at point in the day so you know i, I don't think the cortisol and then sure the whole two days out of the shelter i'm not surprised the dogs just go home and sleep I mean, yeah they they're finally able to sleep yeah they they have been stressed there you go and i would think that honestly i think that would be more stressful because they're at home two days same person oh this is great i'm out of that place and then two days later no you're back in see you later you know i i think that there's something in that emotional bond that you do need to be cautious with dogs can bond very that's true that's true and i didn't think through um that that transition from what what we would call like better to worse could also be stressful but eh, I mean the dogs seem to be doing for the two nights seem to be doing pretty well and the other thing I thought was really cool about her um, her study although it's not really part of her study it's like an indirect outcome was that these people who are signing up to you know do these two hour and two night vacations uh, it sounds like it's not uncommon for them to adopt that dog sort of like what you were saying yeah <laughs> exactly uh, that's what I mean that's kind of the sneaky the sneaky side of it right oh take this animal for a test drive and then bring it back yeah, if you want to i mean if it's yeah. a good fit we're cool yeah yeah so very smart i like that program yeah um, it's interesting. I like that she's actually getting data instead of people just saying, but we love that the dogs are out there. Okay. We all love that. But well, remember people, people thought that uh, it sounds like the most common reaction she or a common reaction she gets is that people are actually concerned that the dogs are not going to like the vacation just for what you were saying. Like, I mean, it's, it's a little anthropomorphic how other people say it, but you know, the dog's going to be like really sad. Yeah. To come back. I think there was concern that you would actually increase yes. the stress stressed because the dog kind of was like he was out of there and now he's back and he thought he was adopted yeah yeah and so then there's like no assurance when they leave that they're leaving so they they stop you know yeah. there's something and 
you know, learning theory would support some having concerns about that. You know, if, if the dog learned, I mean, it would be reverse conditioning, right? So when they get out of the shelter, it's a signal that there's going to be X amount of time without shelter, but a shelter is coming back, you know, so the, so then you get that spike in negative closer to that two day mark. So I think there might be a finite number of those two nighters that you you could do. Mm. Yeah. So it's, it is something that needs to be studied and taken into account. Um, Yeah. Yes. And then um, so moving from Lisa to Pamela Reed. So this is another shelter. It's not a study. I mean, Pamela's the, I don't know her title, really high level. Okay. He's a senior director of behavior science. For the ASPCA. Yeah. And what's, what's fascinating is, I mean, she's been in this position or, or at least uh, with the ASPCA in a similar position for like quite some time. And they have several, many behavioral staff members across like it's five, five or six different locations across the US, five different locations. Here we go. Mm -hmm. And each location for the ASPCA is is bringing in dogs who have sometimes behavioral issues. And so it's these different teams with different protocols, helping different animals. And what she noted was that there is no consistency across how the animals are being assessed, which ones are sent for adoption, which ones are, uh, are sent for behavior modification, and which ones need special placement. And what the way I thought was interesting that she phrased it was she, she sort of felt that wasn't fair to those animals because they sort of depended on where you went and who you got and who you were. Uh, that would decide what 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 happened with you. And so she's put together this really nice, um, I'll call it a project where she's getting everyone on all five teams across the US, they're speaking the same language, they have the same objective behavioral definitions um, across behavior and non behavior staff. So everyone's saying the same thing. Uh, they're all assessing behavior comprehensively and consistently. They're formally collecting direct data um, that you know they have interacted with this dog. And this is exactly what they saw using these definitions. Um, They're formalizing their data collection. They're establishing behavior adaptability guidelines so that the same types of dogs are very consistently being adopted out across, again, all these different places. Um, And I think the piece I liked best was she's putting together this very comprehensive risk assessment of if this, then that, you know, this is higher risk than that, Mm -hmm. which very similar to what Suzanne uh, Hetz and Dan Estep had done a long time ago, but much more, I think much more detailed. And and to me, it was almost like prescriptive, which I kind of like. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, the fact that they're, they're pulling together these tools that are well thought out, that are functional, that, you know, just looking at them, there's really really no reason why they couldn't be used, you know, and you get a lot of pushback as a behavior person in a shelter when you start asking animal care staff, even veterinary staff, like, okay, you, you're telling me the dog is having a problem. What does that mean? You know, what did, what did their eyes look like? Well, you know, their eyes are in their head. What do you want me to say? You know, it's, <laughs> it, so training people oh, on how to make these observations in a meaningful way is amazing. And then putting it in their hands where they can use it in real time and it pops up eyes. And you remember, oh yeah, okay, their eyes were wide or dilated. I could see the whites. I couldn't see the white. Um, they were looking at me, not looking at me. Like all of that stuff is super, super important when you're trying to develop behavior modification plans or trying to make decisions um, very quickly about safety. Um, when you're in a shelter and you have someone run in and they're like, this dog just 
lunge and snapped at me. I mean, you really have that moment to decide, okay, is this a dog that is safe? Is this a dog I continue to ask people to work with? You know, who's going to feed this dog in the meantime while I'm trying to assess the dog? Um, you know, so having someone give you an accurate description of what actually happened is amazing. I mean, it takes so much weight off of your shoulders and trying to figure out what exactly happened in that moment. And, um, and, and the tools are just really well put together. They're really good. Oh, they look superb. They're not, they're not quite done yet. I don't think, but no, I think that, you know, the, the end goal is that they will be made readily accessible. Um, I can't remember if she said, you know, free or whatever, but I, mm-hmm. you know, with the A's whole mission statement is really improving the lives of animals and they stick to it. So, you know, if they have something valuable, they are more than a share. I mean, they have so much information on their website as it is. Um, but yeah, as, you know, the end goal is that I think they said they have a couple more years worth of work to really iron out the kinks, get the database up and running, get this information really pulled together but they're happy to share what they have at any moment. So, you know, if there's people with questions, I think reaching out to them, they, they wouldn't get strong arm, but definitely get some, mm-hmm. some help and some insight. So yeah. it's exciting. I can't wait to see it actually all yes. the way done. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and then, so moving on from, um, from Pam's talk. So the next one I have on here, and I think we'll just do like maybe, maybe two more after this mm-hmm. is um, Elizabeth Felties, who is a sort of a board certified veterinary, veterinary behaviorist. And and she's the one who did the um, titled characteristics of intra-household inter-dog aggression and dog and pair factors associated with poor outcome. And so she she sees, you know, cases. And it sounds like she did a retrospective study of her, her case notes from 2007 to 2016. So, you know, nine years and 305 uh, pairs of uh, dog pairs with inter-dog, inter-dog aggression intra-household oh my god intra-household inter-dog aggression between two dogs within the same house oh my god (laughs) and uh so she was trying to what she was trying to specifically figure out is can she can she identify variables that are correlated with poor outcomes which she defined as uh, the dogs being rehomed behavioral euthanasia or you know total and complete separation of these two dogs within the home so create and rotate yeah and i think that she lumped a lot of things together you know a dog that's capable of being rehomed well that's a certain level of aggression dog that you have to behaviorally euthanize that's a whole nother level so which is fascinating because like she said 25.4 percent of the cases had poor outcomes but i have written down and these i'm not sure these numbers are totally correct um of those 25.4 percent two were separated seven were rehomed and 21 were behavioral euthanasia which seems really a little high now that I'm thinking about that mm. like for just for just the rehome to behavioral euthanasia don't you think seven to 21 that seems yes. I would have thought at least 50 50 no I wouldn't think 50 50 I think when you're talking about aggression you run into the issue of usually you're at the point where the dogs have done damage and once that's happened there's not hardly a rescue out there that's going to help um, if you know that a dog can will significantly injure another animal or human um, shelters, especially the, they just can't take the, on the liability. Mm-hmm. And I think no matter what state you live in, liability laws, even the most lax liability laws, you like, no, if you know the dog will bite, then you're liable as it bites. Yeah. So, so once a dog is, has significantly injured another animal, then really your choices are you either rehome it or crate and rotate or euthanize. Yeah. So, and then trying to convince 
your friends to take your aggressive dog. I don't know. Well, I wouldn't do that to my friends, but exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So <laughs> I think, yeah. yeah, I might double check the numbers, but yeah, it's not inconceivable. Yeah, that's fair. And then, um, so some of the data I have from her that the aggressor averaged 16 months younger than the recipient and 3.2 pounds heavier, which again, there could be, could be some compounds there, some limitations to the data, because maybe, you know, maybe people are more likely to bring in their dog, their dogs, if the aggressor is the heavier, because otherwise, you know, if you've got a chihuahua aggressing on a Great Dane, like you're probably not going to pay a veterinary behaviors for that. Whereas if it's vice versa, you know, that's a problem. I think if your chihuahua wasn't being aggressive, take your behaviors, <laughs> like what's wrong with it? <laughs> it's broken. Uh, <laughs> most pairs, which you had so aptly noted earlier, is that most pairs did include a female. So 70% had at least one female in them. The aggressors were more often female, but the part that I thought was um, most interesting, because when I say aggressors were more often female, it meant that 52% of the aggressors were female. So it's not like wildly oh, more. Yeah, 70, 30 or whatever. Mm -hmm. But female, female pairs, which are notorious, uh, had three times the risk of a poor outcome compared to male, female pairs. Yeah. And I think, you know, that speaks to the intensity or the level of aggression that you're going to see between. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, but in all fairness, male, male pairs had a 2.2 times the risk of um, poor outcome. So it sounds like same sex. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which I think is probably not a surprise to anybody, but no, I mean, if you've owned dogs, I mean, you're well aware that two female dogs are difficult. Um, and then two male dogs, of course. I don't know. I, I don't ever, I don't seem to get as much complaint about two male dogs aggressive. And I don't know if it's just the owner's like, well, they're, they're boys. Like, I mean, I've heard that so many times. That is not an excuse. Yeah. What's wrong with people? Your dogs don't get to just fight because they're both boys. Come on. Stop. <laughs> and then, and then she had two other really interesting hypotheses that did not bear out. So one was that separation anxiety was somehow correlated with, I think the aggressor and that um, she did not find that correlation. And second, she had suggested she she had seen a bunch of um not boxers french bulldogs maybe she no pugs, pugs. no no yeah. was it pugs maybe it was pugs um our sharp haze. no i think it was pugs <laughs> she had seen a bunch of like a a, a, a spate of pugs. a spate of aggressive pugs and yeah. so she had a hypothesis that um if a dog is was is it brachycephalic or brachycephalic yeah. brachy Brachy was brachycephalic that they were also more likely to um have interdog aggression and that also was not significant so that did not bear out yeah but Man, I love the fact that there were data around the set of people going, oh, there's litter mate syndrome. Oh, you know, don't put two females together. Um, you know, anecdotes are great, but we need data. Well, it's interesting you say that because I, I'm looking through my notes. 7.5% uh, of all the pairs were genetically related and 5% were litter mates, which I, to me must be high because 5% of, of, of household dogs in the U.S. are not litter mates. There's no way, right? Oh. One out of every 20 is a litter there's no way huh. i wouldn't think so i wouldn't I, think so either and yeah i mean littermate syndrome is one of those things that people talk about and but finding documented evidence of it has yeah. been scant yeah. so it's nice that she has that in in her data she looked for it she looked at it yeah so to me that kind of that obviously doesn't prove littermate syndrome but to me it's it would be suggestive yes yeah yeah and it's not unreasonable because you have dogs that are maturing and hitting these maturation points at 
the same time. You have them that, I mean, they're genetically so similar. So they're going to respond to insult equally, if you will. I mean, Hmm. genetics, big role in behavior. So, um, you know, I don't know. I I, I don't find littermate syndrome a hard sell, if you will. I think, I think I'm always surprised when people are like, oh, these are littermates and they've gotten along for their entire life. Really? Wow. That's awesome. (laughs) You made made it past that three-year mark? That's cool. That's good. Lucky. So yeah, hopefully she'll publish this because there's a lot of, a lot of very detailed, very good data in it. Yes, it is definitely something that needs to get out. Um, I'm sorry, I do want to do two more. I want to finish on Camille's. So the next one I'm going to talk about, I'm actually not going to name the presenter just because I don't want like nasty email to anybody, but I, I liked this talk. I just want to be real clear. Are you so, talking about your own talk? Is that no, what <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you though. Uh, I don't think I get nasty emails for the, I purposely choose research topics where I don't think I'm going to get nasty emails. <laughs> I was told you're supposed to do that when you, um, you're a more seasoned researcher and you have oh. more behind you, then you can start doing the more interesting things. But uh, I guess that's where I went wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I won't name this person, but it was a very, not a research talk and more of a philosophical talk. And this is the one Jessica where we were talking about the, um, humane hierarchy and oh. yeah. Uh, and, and how the humane hi- hierarchy has become a very popular, um, very commonly used it's not a protocol. What would you call it? Just a philosophy, I guess. I don't know. Cause pro- I don't, yeah. I don't pay attention to it. Okay. Okay. Well, it's very common. And um, Is it not terrible? <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> well, I mean, when you like, when you take the CPDT test, if I recall, there were lots of questions I think about it. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. And again, it was a long time ago, so I, I don't quite remember, but, but the, the argument that was being made by this author is that even though the purpose of the humane hierarchy is to, I'll put in quotes, ensure, you know, that protocols being used to modify the behavior of animals are are humane um, and ethical. This author argued that in fact the humane hierarchy is 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 unethical because it prescriptively determines which types of protocols will be used, even though those may not be the the best balance of uh, of risk versus yeah. efficacy. Yeah, and that it, it sort of forces you to take each step, even though you know, oh man, if I take this step and delay going right to what I know is going to work, I got to prolong this whole thing. I might make it worse. Um, yeah, it, it does hamstring because if you are going to use the hierarchy the way it built then yes, you have to go step by step. Right. But I I feel like, and she had an interesting point, is I feel like the hierarchy was developed because of potentially a misunderstanding of how to perform, how to do science, how to how to use um, behavioral principles and validated protocols to identify what you should do. And if you don't have that understanding, then it could be very dangerous for you to not go through something prescriptive like this. So essentially what's trying to do is, is ensure that people who may not know what they're doing can't do damage. But then it also yeah, hamstrings and I the think people that who raises, do yeah. I think that raises the more important fact that behavior is an actual science. Yeah. It's not something you wake up one day and say, hey, I like animals. I'm going to be a behaviorist today. Like... I mean, to get to a level of proficiency with animal behavior, especially if you want to get into comparative behavior, I mean, it, it takes actual study and internship and getting out there and doing it because you can take things the absolute wrong way. And I would say probably a solid 50 to 60% of my client base are people whose dogs started with a small issue. They went to the wrong trainers, the wrong facilities, the issue became significant. And now 
we're at a point where, all right, we've got to do serious behavior modification. This animal, you know, it can't be around other people. It can't yeah. Um, and there is harm done when you don't know what you're doing, for sure. And so I kind of agree that I think it's adding to the ethical conundrum by developing things that are targeting people who don't know what they're doing. Um, yeah. And and so I do have an issue with that. And, and again, but this kind of speaks to the profession in and of itself that, I mean, we've got to organize and we've got to make this a regulated field. We just do. Um, you know, we sit yes. around and complain a lot like, oh, well, behavior's not regulated. Well, you know, it's not going to regulate itself, right? (laughs) We've tried that and it it hasn't happened. So I do think things like this highlight the fact that um, people shouldn't be able to just wake up and say, I'm a behaviorist. I 100% agree. I really do. Um, That's not allowed for humans, frankly. Uh, Don't know why it's allowed for animals. Yeah. I can't. I always think of like, and this is going to just going to date myself here. So (laughs) hold hold your horses. Um, (laughs) So Ferris Bueller's Day Off which was a great movie. I'm sure you have seen it, but there's a scene in Ferris Bueller Day and Ferris characters, laissez-faire, life is going to come at you, welcome it with open arms and wherever the day takes where you're supposed to be kind of philosophy of life, right? And there's a scene where he's holding this clarinet and making the most horrible noise in all the world and he looks at the camera and smiles and he goes, never had a lesson in my life and keeps playing. And I'm like, that's it. That, when I hear people who are like, yeah, I love animals. So I decided to be a behaviorist today. I'm like, no, you've got to go take the lessons to learn how to play the clarinet. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that's kind of all I So I just, I just, I do want to add to that one. So this is, this is totally a pet peeve. This is probably not relevant to the audience at all. But whenever, whenever I introduce myself, I 0% of the time say how many years I have owned a dog for. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. sometimes you'll, you'll read people's bios and it's like qualification. I've owned dogs for 20 years. Oh, <laughs> right. It's like, if you went to a dentist and they're like, well, I've had teeth my <laughs> whole life. Like that does not help me know if you know how to take care. <laughs> yeah. If you have to say I've owned dogs for X number of years, if that's your qualification, you don't have qualification. Yeah. That's not a qualified. So, yeah. Anyways, okay. I'll move so on. <laughs> <laughs> so I, so this is, I saved the best for last um, because Camille is delightful. So this is Camille Ward's talk and she was doing a pilot study of the calmer canine, which is the uh, CC loop. Well, she, um, did she did a case study. Well, she called it a pilot study, but yet it's a case study. It's technically a case study. Um, and she tested it for what would you car anxiety what would you yeah stress and cars but let's make sure everybody knows what that loop thingy is okay so it's so it comes from uh, i guess the physical therapy development and so loop that emits some electronic pulse that actually reduces inflammation. And it has been used in horses um, for thoroughbred and racetrack horses. They use it to reduce inflammation. And it is, you know, there are data that show that this thing works on musculature, um, on joints. It is used in human physical therapy well, but... But at different... At different levels. Yeah. Different intensities. Yeah. And for completely different body parts. Yes. So now fast forward they've taken this technology and said oh this thing reduces inflammation so you hold it over your dog's brain it's going to reduce inflammation in the amygdala which is why dogs have anxiety yeah that's yeah that's a pretty good yeah. description right yeah. and However, so uh, yeah. stark asterisk there i don't know of any study that has proven that anxiety is related to inflammation quote unquote in the amygdala yeah i don't i don't 
I honestly don't know if the amygdala gets inflamed or not. Yeah, like if parts of your brain are inflamed, aren't you usually super? <laughs> it does. It does change in size, like with with uh-huh. um, stress and, and uh, certain experiences. Pregnancy. Yeah, sure, yeah. probably. But, no, it um, does. Yes, and <laughs> after you have a baby, it shrinks a little bit. So. <laughs> Is this sure. your wait? Your brain or your amygdala? Your brain. <laughs> but. N- Okay. Uh, well, I could go off on a tangent on amygdala because something fabulous about the amygdala and pregnancy, because I'm so off topic. It's okay. <laughs> but during childbirth, women's amygdalas come activated, which is part of what they think triggers that postpartum depression or maternal anxiety. Oh. And what they found as well is if the mom passes away during childbirth, the father's amygdala will become active. Well, the, obviously, Only I mean, if it the just had a traumatic experience. Away. So it's like, it's Okay, so the amygdala, we do know, is linked to anxiety um, and fear, fear yeah. responses. Yes, it is 100% brain structure that telling you, you know, you're going to be a t- whatever. But now... Is there any evidence that it becomes quote unquote inflamed? And that's why? I don't know. I've, I, I have never heard the word inflamed used for that purpose. I mean, like meningitis. Sure. Yes. Uh, That's inflammation and that's terrible. But okay. So I don't, I don't, and I don't, I haven't looked at the SEC word. So I don't know if they use the word inflammation when when it's related to the brain, but, but you're right. It's, it's a a little bit of a a jump to go from one to the other. And so that's why there's all these questions about like, does it work for, well, they're testing whether it works for separation anxiety, they do have a pilot study on their website with like data. Mm-hmm. Um, I looked and at they the use data. Loops and they use, no, you know, the- not on their website. I didn't see anything about oh. controls. I couldn't find anything. Oh. But if you have I data I don't have, let me know because I do want to see it. I couldn't find anything about control. Well, I think that was part of what came out in the discussion because there were there were, and that's part of the joy of IFAB is that yeah. we were talking about it. Somebody's like, oh yeah, my friend is part of that study, and oh yeah, my friend too, and she was in the control group. And she was, you know, so there, there was some firsthand knowledge about how the study was designed and run. And I wonder if maybe the data for the control group just aren't out yet, because what I, what I saw was from 2019. And I know that last time Nancy Williams had talked about the study, which I think was like a year ago, it was still ongoing. Like she was still enrolling people. So that could be it. Um, But so Camille was interested in like, could she take this loop that's supposed to work for anxiety related to, you know, separation from owners. And could she potentially attempt to apply it to her dog for this, this car related anxiety. And it was very, you know, it was very drafty, very piloty. She totally knows that she essentially put the loop on, or I'm sorry, she took baseline data once of like her dog being in the car and you know, how much did it um, stand, move around, uh, pant, uh, or the other behaviors, but yeah, other she, behaviors of, yeah. She focused in on a, a small set of behaviors. Yes. Yeah. And then she used the loop for a month or six, six weeks, weeks, six mm-hmm. weeks, and then did an, did one more session. So it's, you know, one session pre one session post and is there a difference Mm -hmm. and it was she was very smart because she showed the video she didn't say what she thought she just showed the videos and so she sort of left left it up to the audience to see whether they perceived a difference in the dog's behavior and there were differences i mean and by that i mean there were differences between people's interpretations of whether the dog had improved or not yeah there were differences all over Um, (laughs) and and we you know i and and i think mindy and i part ways here on this yes um so for me right I deal with a lot of private clients who really 
are just like, I don't want to use medication. I want anything else but meds. And I want, you know, anything that would make a difference that's not a medication. And I'm like, okay. And so in Camille's first video, and like I said, she she had a very small set of, of behaviors that she was looking at, which is very helpful when you're trying to compare start and finish because behavior is very big. Yeah. Um, some of the things that she didn't record were lip licks, yawns, um, crossing into the front seat. Uh, I think intensity of whining or vocalization. I think she had vocalization on there, but not an intensity yeah. measurement. Um, and then lying down or or pacing. I think she had lying. Yeah, she had lying down, I think. And so, you know, there were a couple of, I think there were other measurements that did seem to be impacted that she wasn't including. Um, and I think the only thing that was significant difference from ride one to ride two, oh, what was it? I think it was lying down. Was it lying down? Yeah. And didn't it lie down more? In yeah, the first in the, no, I think it, I think it improved in the second one. Okay. I couldn't remember. Yeah. yeah so that, that was the other, that is an issue is that there's one ride on one day and one totally. ride on another day in a different season. One, she's wearing a sweater. One, she's not a uh, dog is wearing a sweater. Oh, and there was less panting. There was less panting on the second one, but yeah. Th- and that's why that was, yeah. One was in, the first one was Winter. in August yeah. and the second one was in like October. Yeah. And, and there was no the control dog. of, you know, yeah. she wasn't like, well, the car was heated to 76 degrees, you know, or, you know, to account for panting but um i do think and and i guess coming at it from the private client yeah. side of things, especially yeah. the ones the clients that i have sometimes who are so adamantly against medications and they want to feel like they've done everything like this would be something that they like hey i can show you this video before and after the differences are not huge you can take a look i you know i'm on the fence i don't know if i'd recommend it yeah but if they found it and they were like yeah we're gonna try it I'd be like cool can i take a video before and after yeah right <laughs> yeah yeah and i think and i think that's definitely where, where camille was coming from is i I don't, I think her end result in her mind was that she didn't see much, if any of a change mm-hmm. pre post, but even if she felt like she had seen a small change, knowing how expensive the Assisi loops are, I think they're like $250. Yeah. It wouldn't have, like, I think she was looking for, is the change large enough to make up for the fact that this is a very expensive recommendation to a client. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And and I think I'm at the point where I'm like, well, I'm not going to run out and recommend it, but I'm also not writing it off. I'm yeah. I'm still willing to listen. I haven't walked away from it. That's fair. That's totally fair. And it's it's funny you say about the clients who are admin they want to try everything before medication because um I had a client recently who said, uh, I want to try everything before we try medication and I want that to include shock collars. And I'm like, wait. You're not willing to medicate your dog, but you are willing to shock them. I, I Fascinating. Literally just, I literally just had this conversation. I'm like, well, shock collars, you know, there are a lot of studies out there. And whether the studies say the shock collars work or they don't or whatever it is, the one thing they consistently say is that the dog's demeanor is significantly changed. So, you know, ears are droopy, tail is lowered, back is rounded. They look like a dog that is more timid um, versus a dog that's trained with positive reinforcement. And is it significant? And there are, you know, there's, I think I'd have to look back, but I know that there's more than one study that's found. So I'm like, if you're willing to use a shock collar going to give you negative psychological changes, then 
why wouldn't you try a pill that has all this, all these data showing positive psychological, Mm -hmm. they're they're both going to impact the brain, you know, why not start with, with the easy side, let's work with your fat and see if there's something that might work, you know? Yeah. You can always, you can always have the shop collar later. Well, I, I won't be applying it, but yes, you can. No, I, I won't either. Later. Yeah, no, I, it was just, it was a fascinating um, mm-hmm. conversation for me. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's shocking. <laughs> Good one. I know, thanks. Uh, but so anyway, so for those of you who are, who are interested in learning more about the ACC loop, I mean, they have a website, they have their pilot data for their separation anxiety up on there. I, I am not, um, again, I don't think they have all the data up there. My guess is it's a little bit old, but the data they do have are not convincing to me. And probably because just like Jessica said, we really need a control group to know. We either need a really strong baseline or a really strong control group. Um, and I also want to know exactly what they measured because they don't, their website's very, it's like an abstract. You're like, you're reading an abstract. Yeah. Yeah. There's not a lot of detail on the website. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, and so I think those are all of my favorite talks from IFAB. There were, there were many others, but we don't really have time for all of them. And um, I guess, are there any ones that you want to chat about Jessica or is that pretty much your top ones too? Those are pretty much the top ones. There, there was a behavioral genetics presentation that I found absolutely fascinating. Um, but I, you know, I, I like genetics. I, I think it's an interesting study. I know that's, that's where you started, right? Some, yeah. Some I've got a bachelor's in genetics. Oh yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think that maybe we leave that one for another day. Cause that was pretty weighty. It was very technical, super technical. Yeah. And so um, for those of you who are listening, I mean, IFAB is, is every single year this year, it was virtual next year. I think we've decided it's going to be in, I think it's going to be in Texas is what Valerie and others decided. I think Valerie and I always vote for Texas. Yeah. <laughs> it never comes to the northern states. So for those of you who don't like being cold, you don't need to worry. But um, again, if you are interested, just go to the IFAB website. I think it's, I don't, you'll need to type in interdisciplinary forum for applied animal behavior because I can't remember what the website is. It's ifab.something, but I don't want to give you the wrong website. Um, the uh, the abstracts are due typically in February. The conference itself is in end of April and it's super cheap. It's like 90 bucks to attend this yeah. conference. And it's, yeah, some it's, of, uh, yeah. it's great. It really is a wonderful wonderful conference yes you always learn something yes and you make new friends too that's the thing it's so small that you get to meet everybody who's there that's how we met is that how we met yeah i don't remember all those many years ago at ifab must be (laughs) (laughs) like i don't i'm so old i don't remember anymore oh god uh welcome to the club (laughs) thanks all right we will see you all next month